I am not much of a fan of beach vacations. And I know, <laughs> I'm glad I have one out there like me. I know there, that is like anathema to many people, especially in Tuscaloosa, is the idea that you would not like to go to the beach. But I used to. I, I just don't much like it anymore. And, and the main reason, the change that happened was I had kids. <laughs> and and there's, there's just something that happens when you have children. It takes the joy from the beach away. And so we go out there now, and we're out there early in the morning, and we're out there early because we're awake early in the morning, and we're lugging you know, everything out there, the kitchen sink and everything. And we get out there on the beach and we're like setting up, you know. And our kids are running around like, and it's not just our kids, right? It's just parents with kids in, in general. But like kids are just, they're running around like monkeys on a sugar rush. And you're looking over here to your left and you got the old couple who's retired. Kids are long gone. And, and they're, they've been out there for five hours already. And they're, they're relaxed, and they're like, they've been relaxed, they're going to be relaxed, they've never been in any other state but relaxed, all right? And they're looking at you like, and they're, they're saying to you, you know, treasure those days. <laughs> Just treasure, treasure them. And we're like, you've forgotten these days. Uh, and then over on this other side is the newlywed couple who doesn't have any kids. They haven't gone to bed yet, all right? They're just, they're up, they're watching the sunrise, or whatever it is, and they don't have any kids, and they're looking at you like, poor sap, you know, and you're, you know, you're putting all the stuff together, and then you're trying to keep your kids from dying. That's like the big goal, right, is like you're trying to keep your kids from just being sucked into this ocean that has nothing but a murderous intent for your children, it's just going to suck them out, and they're going to just be gone forever. And that's all that can ever go through your mind. And so you're standing there. I remember back in the day when our kids were, you know, one, our youngest were still in diapers. And, and you're out there on the edge of the seashore, and these, you know, waves just come up, and they, they, they hit you in the calf, and it's like nothing. But it hits them in the chest, and it knocks them over, and the water rushes over their face, and you pick them up. Oh, no, I almost let my baby drown. And they're in tears, and they're thinking, you know, oh, man, this is just the worst thing. And you're, and you're like, yes, baby, the, the ocean is trying to murder you, so why don't you stay up here on this shore? And, and then they won't listen to you, obviously, because they don't speak English. And so they just go, then go, and they try to go back out into the ocean two seconds later. And so it's just this constant stress-inducing vacation for you. As you're trying to enjoy the ocean, I just, I don't much like it. And I keep thinking the whole time as we're, we're out there on the beach and I'm watching our, our youngest little babies, I, I keep thinking, it will be great one day when they get taller and they get stronger and they can swim. And so we go back to the beach not that long ago and they're, you know, our oldest is almost 11, 9, and 7 and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, it might be pretty good. Now what happens is they just want to go deeper out there into the ocean. So now we're all out there as a family, and now the waves and the sea is up here to me, and, and it's, like, it's like this to them, you know, and they're trying to doggy paddle and trying to make it, and every time a wave comes in, you got to pick them up, or they're going to drown because, again, the ocean is murderous and, uh, and wants to kill them. And so 
you know, you're, you're, you're just trying to save them. And, and what you realize along the way at some point is that it, it, it really, the beach, it doesn't get safer. It, the waves just get deeper. That's the only thing that changes, is that you just go deeper out. Things continue to get harder. We've been watching David over the last, I don't know, 10 plus chapters since 1 Samuel 16. And what, what you come to realize after a while is that almost the entire ending of the book of 1 Samuel is all about God taking David into a school and teaching him to trust. That's almost the whole thing, the end of the book of 1 Samuel. If you remember right, David was crowned king. He was anointed king. And as, quote-unquote, fate would have it, right? It just happened stance. The people of Saul find David and bring him into the palace as one who can soothe Saul when he goes off into his outrage. So David comes in and is learning there in the midst of the palace how to be a king. Just don't take that for granted. Normally, you become a king following your father. And so you watch him be king, and then you take the throne, and you've learned how to be king because your dad was king. David doesn't have that. How is he going to learn how to be king? God brings him into the palace, gives him a front row seat to being king. And then, as he is there in the front row seat, he makes him commander of the armies of Israel. Saul appoints him as commander of the armies. And he leads them for a while, learning more about what it means to actually be king and lead God's people. And then, things get really twisted. All of a sudden, David is on the run from this king who wants to kill him. Literally take his spear and pin him to a wall. And so David is on the run from Saul the entire time, learning now not just how to be king over God's people, but now actually how to trust the Lord. Yes, David, I know that you are king. Yes, you are, I have made you king. I have brought you close to me. But there is still a question. Do you trust me? So David is now sent on the run from Saul as the king of Israel is after him. And he's learning... Can I actually trust the Lord? And we see there's this section of chapters from 24, 25, and 26 where David goes through this little routine that sort of that, that parallels stories, if you will. The first one is David is in a cave and Saul comes in to use the bathroom and, and David thinks that this might be the time where he can go and, and kill Saul. And his men even whisper in his ear and say, look, now's the time. You can kill him. He's right there. You can just take him. And so David sneaks up behind Saul and cuts off the corner of his robe as a sign of disrespect. And he's basically telling him, one more move and I can kill you. And immediately David's heart is gripped. What is that that happens to him? It's the Lord bringing to his mind and his conscience sin. You can't, you can't do it that way, David. Do you trust me? So David, it's a policy from that moment forward to his men. You, we're not doing this. 
We're not reaching our hand out against the Lord's anointed. I, I'm too convicted. I can't, I can't do that. God does not want me to do it this way. And then what happens in the next chapter, but Nabal, the fool, rejects him, won't give him food, remember? And so David decides, I'm going I'm to kill this guy, and mounts up his army and goes after him, and he is impeded by Nabal's wife. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, intercepts David and says, you can't do this. You don't want to achieve salvation by your own hand. And, and it's interesting what David says. If you go all the way back to 25, verses 32 and 33, this is what he says. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. You understand how David is interpreting what has just happened. Now, you might be tempted to just read the story and go, well, the man's wife went to stop the guy who would murder her husband. That makes sense. That's not how David or Abigail or the author of the Bible understands what just happened. All of them see behind the scenes that what has happened is God has intervened here in this every, what would seem to be a, 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 an ordinary event that makes complete and perfect sense. A wife intercepts a murderer from killing her husband. All of them see behind the scenes and say, no, the God of the universe who has brought me into the palace, who has brought me on the run, is, has brought me into his seminary, and he is teaching me something. And what he is instilling in me right now from this episode that he kept me from killing your husband is that he doesn't want me to accomplish salvation by my own hand. So the very next chapter, David has yet again another opportunity to kill Saul. And this time it's not even a question for him. He has learned to trust God. Now the Bible doesn't tell you that right up front. And God brought David into his seminary to teach him a valuable lesson. What you do is you, you see the stories, the way they link together, and you start to understand what's going on here is that God is actually bringing the king. He, he's already anointed him king, but he hasn't made him a king yet. And so he's bringing him along the way through a series of trial and tribulations, some of which he fails, some of which he falters, some of which he doesn't do quite right. And in the end, he starts to realize through conviction of sin and through other people intercepting him along the way that, look, I don't want to do it that way. The Lord's actually teaching me something here. And so he's resolved to wait for God to provide all the deliverance. Now, you might look at that and go, well, isn't that a really cool thing that the author of 1 Samuel looked back and said, look at how all these stories work together. Do you understand? That is not what the author of the Scriptures is actually saying. What they're saying is that God did this by His sovereign direction. That it was God's sovereign hand at work, planning and implementing all of this that happened in David's life. That changes how you read the story, doesn't it? 
Because now, David is not just on the run from some tyrannical moron. David is on the run because God wants him on the run. Well, that changes everything about the story. In fact, that's exactly what we see. If you go all the way back to 1613, you don't have to turn there, but in 1613, what do we find there? But as soon as David is anointed, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and is with him from that day forward. So what we understand as readers is that everything that David is now doing is directed by the Lord's presence in his life. God is taking sovereign control here. Not that he ever had, didn't have it. But not only that, he also puts friends around him. How else would the king's son take David in, befriend him, and seek to strengthen him when it means that he won't become king, but David will? In fact, what we find in 1 Samuel 23, 16 is that Jonathan goes out to meet David and strengthens him in God. Strengthens his hand in the Lord. Reminding him of exactly what the Lord has brought him out here to do, what the Lord is going to do through him, what the Lord is eventually going to accomplish. Reminds him that he's going to be king. You're going to be on the throne. And I'm going to be standing right at your right hand. But then things get really weird. Because not only do we see the Spirit of the Lord rush upon David and direct David, we see something also in addition to that. And that is that a spirit of madness comes upon Saul. Look back at chapter 16, verse 14. Just flip a couple pages back in your Bible. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, wait a second. Now, if we're just looking at 1 Samuel as just happenstance, these are things that just took place, has happened to transpire. We are not going to have a category for verse 14 of chapter 16. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. I get that. But a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him? Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. How is it that the Lord sent a harmful spirit from him to torment Saul? But not only that, a few verses later in verse 23 it says, And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul... David took to the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So not only does God send the harmful spirit to Saul to torment him, but supplies David with his own spirit, and the two are meant, one is meant to be a grace and a mercy to the other. But then things turn in chapter 18, verse 10. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand. He seeks to try to kill him. The harmful spirit from the Lord rushes upon Saul, and it's used to try to kill David. The next chapter, chapter 19, verses 9 to 10. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck, he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Why is it that David is on the run from Saul? Saul. 
Because a harmful spirit of the Lord has tormented Saul, pushed Saul to the brink so that he tried to kill David, and David runs. Why is he out in the wilderness? Because God wants him in the wilderness. This is sovereign direction that's happening here, where David is going, all of the places that David ends up. This is all sovereign direction. David has been brought in to God's school for students who don't trust so good. And he is learning in that school what it means to trust God. By the end of 26, we see David is starting to pass the test. So far. But now what happens when the tests get harder? You see, what we find out is that it doesn't get easier the waves just get deeper. So here we go into 29. You remember David was promised in the previous chapter to be the bodyguard of Achish. Look at 28 verses 1 to 2. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Well, here we go. Because now David is, in, is stuck in a real situation. Look at verse 1 of our passage in chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Okay, just as a little note here. We're going back in time. All right? 28... The Philistines are already gathered right up next to the, the Israelites, and Saul is really worried, and so he goes and consults the witch at Endor. That's what we talked about last week. So now we're going back in time, and the Philistines are on their way up there, and David is with them. He's in the back, marching with Achish, and he's going up as they're going to gather against the, the uh, Israelites who are encamped at the spring in Jezreel. So they haven't met them yet. They're at Aphek, still a little bit south, and they're headed up that way. But the point is, David is in a giant pickle. You can't get more pickly than the pickle that David is in right now. Because he has been sworn to be Achish's bodyguard. So that's a problem, because Achish is now going to fight against Israel, whom he's been sworn to be king over. You see the problem? Now, there is no reason to believe that David is going to go up there and kill a bunch of Israelites. In fact, I refuse to believe that. If you do believe that, the entire first part of the book of 1 Samuel does not make any sense whatsoever. What God has done is he's driven David out into the land of the Philistines because David would not reach out his hand against Saul. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. Remember? He's already made that promise. So there is no reason to believe that now that David has gone out to the land of the Philistines and because he's made a promise with Achish that all of a sudden he's going to go up and he's going to fight against Saul or he's going to kill any one of the Lord's, uh, the Lord's people. He has been anointed king over Israel. He's already been stopped from killing Nabal and he realizes that would be trying to accomplish salvation by my own hand. I don't want to do that. So he's been stopped in every regard from trying to reach out his hand against God's people. He's not going to do that. But you can kind of see the pickle that he's in because 
He's king over those people. If he did reach out his hand and try to kill them, well, that ends that, right? Now he's a fugitive completely from the law. But we also have no reason to suspect that he wants to betray Achish either. Now, you might look at Achish and you go, well, why not? Achish is, a, is one of those uncircumcised Philistines like Goliath. Why wouldn't you reach out your hand against him and just take him? Well, if David was pushed to the brink, he probably would. All right? But I don't think he wants to. Why? Because Achish is providing his only safe harbor. If he kills Achish or he kills any of the Philistines, all of them are going to turn against him, and now he's not going to be able to hide with Saul, and he's not going to be able to hide with the Philistines either. You see the dilemma? So now he is in quite a pickle where he's going into battle against the Israelites, whom he can't touch, and he's going with the Philistines, whom he also can't touch. There is absolutely no way out of this trial. He is enclosed on all sides by nothing but the sea. The waves have now gotten so deep, and he's floating out there like this, and the sharks are all swimming underneath. How on earth is David ever going to get out of this situation? He's stuck either way he goes. And what we find out is as the servant of God grows, as he gets more mature, as he passes trial after trial after trial, as he is brought to his knees time and time again by the living God, as the servant of God grows in God's school, the trials don't get safer, the waters just get deeper. Now it's so deep, he can't see the land at all. So the Philistines, who are going out to battle, raise this question. Look at verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? <laughs> so, there's five Philistine cities, five major Philistine cities. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. And Achish is king over Gath. Each one of them has a king or a lord. So they're basically all five of them commander of all of the armies. And they're going up there, and one of the lords, one of the five, looks across and goes, what are these guys doing here? Who brought, who brought them? Everybody's pointing, you, you do it, you do it. And Achish is like, oh, you mean David? He's my buddy. And they're like, he ain't your buddy. I don't care that you feel like you've got a lion. Have you seen the when animals attack? You've seen the little... Some guy's got a lion on a chain, and he brings him out there, and he's like, he's my tame friend. You know, and he's like, that's not a tame friend. That is a, that is a lion that you've got on a chain, on a really weak little dog chain, and he'll snap that chain and eat you alive if he wants to. And so the Philistine lords are out there with Achish going, who invited these guys along with us? And Achish is like, this is, this is David. Look at the rest of, of verse 3. Is this not David? The servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years. I've raised him since he was a little cub. And since, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him this day. He has not eaten one child. This, this tame, he's a tame lion. This bumble has no teeth. 
<laughs> and the Philistine lords, he, he says, verse 4, but the, the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place where you have assigned him. Get, put him back in the kennel. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? How would he then get in the good graces of Saul? You say he's deserted Saul to come with us. How would he get himself in the good graces of Saul? Wouldn't it be to cut off our heads? Wouldn't that be how he would get in the good graces of Saul? Why don't you put that lion back in its cage? And so they, they understand exactly who David is, and they don't want anything to do with David. And what they even recall, look at verse 5, is this not David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. His ten thousands what? Philistines. They cite the song that is sung about David that was sung against them. Remember, they sing this song about us because he has killed 10,000 of us. Saul is nothing compared to this guy. And you want, us, you want this guy to be a part of, of, of us? No, I don't, I don't think so. So the Philistine lords recall this song that's sung at their expense. And they say, no, he, David is, is, if forced, he will cut off our heads, he will betray us, and to their point, probably, right? We know that, right? If he had to, if that's where, where it was, if he was left out there with the Philistines, that would, he would say, be the Lord's will, is to kill the Philistines and hand them over to Saul. Alright, so David's not in an ideal situation, but it looks like there's some sort of rescue. But what happens next? Look at verse 6. This is a shocker of all shockers if you're reading it right. Look at verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Do, do you, you notice where, where Achish says at the beginning of verse 6, as the Lord lives. You see that word Lord written there in your Bible. Do you see how it's written? You see that it's written with a capital L and then smaller letters after that, but still capitalized O-R-D. That means that the word behind that is Yahweh. Here is a Philistine king swearing by the name of the Hebrew God. Let that sink in just a minute. Here is a Philistine king swearing by, and the only thing you swear by is the name that no higher name can be sworn by. Here is a Philistine king swearing by that name before David. Now, you'll remember, maybe, in the last chapter we talked about last week, Saul goes to consult a witch at Endor. And there, the witch, who has a conscience, remember, she goes, I'm not supposed to be being a witch. And Saul says, Saul says, no, 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 look at verse 10 of chapter 28. Saul says, Saul swore to her by the Lord, 
as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So Saul also calls upon the name of the Lord, right? Here's a pagan king in 29 calling upon the name of the Lord, swearing by him. Here's the king of the Lord's people swearing by the same name. And yet in 28, Saul is swearing by the name of the Lord to say the thing that the Lord condemns, being a witch, that you know you're not supposed to be, the Lord's not going to do anything about that. That's the king of the Lord's army. And here is the king of the Philistines actually swearing by the same name. And what is he doing? He's using it to, see, to say that David has been upright and honest until this point. That in everything that I've ever seen you do, you have always been upright and honest. You've walked in integrity. This is tremendously important for this part of the passage you understand because you have a pagan king validating the moral uprightness of the king of Israel. Lest you think there be any deceit in David, lest you think there be any crooked ways in David, a Philistine king has come to see the superiority of the name of Yahweh so much that he would invoke him in an oath to swear that David has been upright in all of his dealings. Think about the gravity of that in the center of this chapter. So David, he asked David to return in peace, and in verse 8, David gives a little protest. Look at this, verse 8. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from, from the day that I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now, David might be putting up a kind of a false protest here. He might be putting up a genuine protest. But there is some ambiguity in his words, isn't there? The enemies fight against the enemies of my lord the king. Who is that exactly? Who are the enemies of my lord the king? It sounds like those are the enemies, Saul, not of Achish. That David has been very intentional with his words, let's say that. But importantly here, what we find is that Achish twice is going to acknowledge that David has completely represented the living God, has lived in integrity. We've already seen verse 6 where he says, I've found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. But then look at verse 9. He's, and Achish answered David, he doubled down on it again, and he said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God, there it's just Elohim, but an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with me into battle. You notice that he, he tells David here, you've been like an angel of God to me. But, but look, if you go back up to verse 4, you'll see how the Philistine lords cast David. He says, he shall not go down with us in the middle of verse 4. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. The word literally behind that is Satan. 
not meaning the actual person, but just the adversarial role that David has. has. So the Philistine lords understand David to be satanic or an adversary against the Philistines. And Achish sees him to be a messenger from God to him. To help him, I guess, see the superiority of Yahweh in the king of Israel? Can you imagine such a statement being made right here at the end of David's sort of school of theology as he's almost gotten his degree, his diploma, he's almost walked the stage in his cap and gown, and now the Philistine king is looking at David and saying, you have been an angel of God to me, and I swear by the living God, by Yahweh himself, that there has been nothing between me and you. You've lived in complete and perfect integrity. This chapter is demonstrating exactly what David has learned over the years. And we don't have a, 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 a message that says, and, and David was conscripted into Achish's army, and, and he went out to battle, and he thought, uh-oh, I don't want to be in Achish's army. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. We don't know what David was thinking when he was going out to battle. Was he thinking, Lord, how are you going to get me out of this? Now we have copious psalms, numbers and numbers of psalms written by David where he's before the Lord in prayer. What are you going to do, God? So maybe one of those prayers is circulating in his mind as he's on his way out of Philistine territory headed against the children of Israel in battle. Maybe that's the case. But the point is that we see here, not only does he act with the uprightness of integrity, but he's completely trusting in the Lord to deliver him from what seems to be an absolutely impossible pickle. And all of this is happening as the author of 1 Samuel is about to build a contrast between David and Saul. It's already been building, and we're going to see it over the next couple of chapters Saul has been coming to kill David. David won't kill Saul. Saul consults. He's in a jam. He's in a real pickle in the last chapter. And what does he do? He goes and consults with a witch. David is in a pickle, maybe even worse. And what does he do? Patiently waits on the Lord and refuses to deliver himself by his own hand. Saul, what does he receive as a result of his consulting with the witch? He receives condemnation and a death sentence. But what does David receive? David receives validation of his integrity from the king of the Philistines, and he receives rescue. David is sent home. The king of the Philistines says, look, look, here, here's how it's going to work out. You're just going to have to go home. You're just going to have to go home and still receive my protection, and we'll never know what you were going to do. Now, how's that for a rescue? That's pretty great. Until you read the next chapter and you realize what David is rescued to. Oh, it's a moment of celebration, no doubt. Until David gets on the horizon of his hometown and he sees it in an ash heap. And all of his children and his wives are gone. And all of his men and their children and their wives have been kidnapped. And all of his men are looking at him like they want to stone David. And then David all of a sudden is starting to have a lot of doubt and a lot of ridicule about his leadership that he previously hadn't had before. The waves 
get deeper. It doesn't get easier. It just gets deeper. Do you trust me, David? Yeah, I trust you. I've learned over the last few chapters. I've learned. I need to trust you. I don't know how you're going to get me out of this, but I know you're going to get me out. And he's gotten out. But David, as the waves come deeper, do you trust me now? What about when your men hate you? What about when everyone's ridiculing you? What about when all you can hear is the voice of the critic in your ear? What about now? Do you still trust me? See, Christian, the waves of trial come for you. And when they come and you're little, kids, all you're told is you've got to obey your parents. And your parents, when you don't take out the trash like they told you to, your parents look at you like you didn't hear them, like it was so simple. You're supposed to just grab the trash and go do it. You, I told you to clean your room 10 minutes ago. How could you not go clean your room? I told you to brush your teeth and get in the bed. How could you not do this? This is so simple. These are simple commands. Because your parent is standing there on the shore of trial. They're feeling the waves crash up against their, their feet. And they're like, what, what is this? But as a child, it's knocking you down. I, I didn't remember that you told me these things. And the parent's getting frustrated, right? Because when we go out into the ocean, as the waves get deeper, we look back at the trials that came before, and we go, man, I, what I wouldn't give for those trials, right? I wish I had those trials again. Those were easy. Man, let me go back to those days. But you understand that maturity in the Christian faith is God not pushing you back to the shore, but drawing you further out into the water. Every wave doesn't push you backwards, it pushes you forward. And you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into not only a harder trial, but a more mature and deeper faith. And what happens to you as a Christian is you begin to lean more and more, not on the security of the shore, but on God who provides the salvation. Because it turns out that the goal of life is not for you to rest in your own security and your own strength and your own comfort. But it's to be drawn into the arms of God and to rest on Him entirely. Which is exactly what every character in the Old Testament, every person in the Old Testament who goes into God's school of children who don't trust so good has to learn. That along the way they can't rest on their own security and their own salvation and the shore to bail them out. They have to get thrown into the deep end and learn to trust that God is going to be the one to deliver them. That if they're going to have deliverance, it's going to be Him that provides it. At some point, it's coming for all of us. You've either been in trial, you're in trial, or you're about to go in trial. Every single one of us will go into it. Every single one of us will have it happen to them. And at some point, it's going to be cancer. It's going to be health problems. It's going to be the loss of a loved one. It's going to be severe. The boat is going to rock tremendously. Your faith is going to be shaken. At some point, it's going to be me. 
And I don't know what that suffering looks like, but at some point, it's going to be cancer. It's going to be health. It's going to be the loss of a loved one. It's going to be something. And it's in those moments, I don't want platitudes. I don't want, well, you know, God's going to bail you out of this one. I don't want when God opens a door, he opens a window. I want somebody to take my feet and put them firmly on the rock of Christ and say, for your good and for his glory. We don't know the answers. We don't know the reasons. We don't know why the trial hits us the way it does. We don't know why it feels like it's overwhelming. So overwhelming that we can't get out. We don't know the why, but we do know the what. It's God who has sovereignly directed this. And sometimes that makes us bristle, doesn't it? Just to hear that. This is under God's sovereign control. The way some of us use that phrase it sounds more like God's sovereignty is like the mom who came down when her kids got up in the middle of the night and grabbed the flour and the bowl of cereal and the milk and decided to make something special in the kitchen. And God's sovereign control is, well, look what a mess we've got down here now. And somehow I'm going to make sense of this and I'm going to straighten it all out. You know God's going to take all these things and He's going to make them good. Like He just stumbled upon this. It happened without His knowledge. And now He's got to make something out of it. And we trust that He will. You won't find that on the pages of Scripture. What you find instead is, not only is God going to make this for your good and for His glory, but He has sovereignly directed it to happen. And when you relate that to something like the death of a loved one, it's hard for us to reconcile. But how could God, who loves me, who cares for me, how could he have done something so painful to me? Because as you grow, it doesn't get easier. Waves just get deeper. The goal is trust the question is, can you trust me? Do you trust that I'm good? Every single one of us who follow after Christ are in the school right now. And every trial at the moment you're in them feels overwhelming. You will not make it out. But then the question comes, if you look to people to your left and to your right, some of which have suffered way more than you. I mean, they're so far out in the ocean, they can't see the shore anymore. And you look at them and you go, you're here on a Sunday morning. You're singing the same songs that I'm singing. How is it that you haven't been overwhelmed yet? I'm sure they probably have that same question themselves. So ask it. Why are you still here? 
Why are you still listening to sermons? Why are you still reading the Bible? Why are you still singing these songs and, and, and reading the text? Why is that? Do you know why? Because the same God that sovereignly directed the wind and the waves has also taken your feet and set them on the rock of Christ so that you will not move. That's the reason you're here. That's it. That's the reason you'll be here tomorrow. That's the reason you can trust you'll be here next year and year after year, no matter how deep the waves get until you die. Why? It's not because you're strong enough to weather the storm. It's because God is the one that is sovereignly keeping you. Holding you fast. Because otherwise, you'd be driven and tossed by every wind and wave. There's some who may think, I need Jesus for that. I'm here, aren't I? 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, however old I am. Done it without Christ this far. And what you don't understand is you are drifting out to sea and one day that wave is coming. And you're going to wake up to find that you are directly under the judgment of God. See, the rock that God has put our feet on is the rock of Christ. The only thing you can do is depend completely on Him for your safety and security and your passage into eternal life. That's the only thing. But the question is, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him for salvation? Do you trust Him for eternal life? That is the question. Do you trust Him? Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher in London, once said in regards to that great hymn, The Rock of Ages, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Can you say the same thing? Is the, the, the events of your life, the trials and the waves and the frustrations and all of those things, have they caused you to be bitter, to be angry about the sovereignty of God who is, who is in direct control of your life? Or have you learned yet to kiss the wave that dashes you against the rock of ages? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Our prayer is that you help us. You give us that kind of sense of security that can only be had by your children whose feet are planted firmly on Christ for salvation. And we pray, Lord, that those who are drifting out to sea who are not going to be taking the Lord's Supper with us. That you would help them to see the island of hope, the only sense of security there is for eternal life in Christ. Would you give them that? Would you help them to see our King 
who trusted you to death. Whom you granted resurrection. Through whom you promised to give us resurrection. Would you grant salvation to them today? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.